turn in your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 25. Um, We'll be looking at verses 23 to 30. Um, If you don't have a Bible on you, just uh, raise your hand and one of our ushers will get you a Bible. We want you to have God's Word open in your lap in front of you. That's our goal is just to say what God has said and and to work through His truth together. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible at home or one that you can read easily, take this one. It's yours. We want you to have it. Um, We are happy um, when our supply runs low and we get to replace them knowing that uh, that means people have good Bibles in their hands. So um, invite you to take that. Um, it's interesting to consider the, the different levels of how we relate to one another. I don't know if you think about this, um, but there are people that we relate to on a, a very formal level. Um, we have police officers here this morning, doctors. You guys, you guys get that like you know, yes, sir. Um, there's, that, there's that barrier of authority, maybe a, a judge or a professor. Um, most people throughout the day, we, we kind of interact in that middle ground, just that uh, polite level. Um, you know, we chat about socially acceptable things, the, the weather, sports, maybe whatever circumstance we're sharing in together. Um, over time, maybe those relationships grow, those conversations begin to build on one another. Uh, maybe you go to the next stage and you, and you meet like a neutral place over coffee and, and talk a little, a little more, a little deeper. Um, but it seems that across cultures and, and through the ages, there's one distinctive mark of that next level of relationship, a deeper, more personal relationship, and it's this simple act of having a meal together. Inviting someone into your home and sitting down and eating together. I mean, it's funny, eating is a pretty simple thing. It's just a biological necessity, Um, but it it becomes the center of relationships. And it's it's front and center through dating relationships. Um, We we talk often about the importance of having family dinner together. Uh, Holidays, weddings, funerals all have a, a meal as part of the time together. And so, as much as we often read the Old Testament, and particularly these, these verses on the tabernacle, and, and we, we're so easy to assume that this is, a, this is a cold religion, this is duty-driven, this is legalistic, uh, it ought to catch our attention, as we're looking through the tabernacle, that one of the main pieces of furniture is a table. It's a table with bread on it. That's significant. We're going to look this morning at what this table is about and and the bread on it it, called the bread of the presence what is that why is that there what does it tell us about the lord Uh, so exodus chapter 25 um, reading verses 23 to 30 follow along with me as i read it says you shall make a table of acacia wood two cubits shall be its length a cubit its breadth and a cubit and a half its height And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners of the four legs. Close the frame, uh, sorry, close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these, you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour the drink offerings, and you shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. 
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its trustworthiness. Thank you that it is true. Thank you that it is uh, sufficient for us to know you. God, open our eyes this morning. Help us to see um, beyond technical instructions to your heart in this and the wonder of what you uh, are communicating through the tabernacle. Lord, open our eyes to see your grace, your goodness, your love in your word, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have these instructions. Build a table. And uh, put a uh, a picture of somebody's attempt uh, to kind of reconstruct. Oh, I gave you the the wrong one. Do you have the tabernacle picture handy? That's the one I want first, I think. So this is this fancy tent that we've been talking about for a few weeks now. And uh, the more I get into it, the more weeks we're going to spend here. Um, I keep stretching it out. It's just good stuff. Um, so they have this tent to build in the middle of the camp. And, uh, and so on the, the bottom left here would be the front door. You would come in as the priest. And at the far back, that's the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant behind the veil. Obviously, that's cut away. The veil would go all the way across. And, uh, and, and this is this holy place that God has said um, that, he would, um, that he would meet with them. He would, his presence would be among them in the tabernacle. And, and uh, as you come in, um, right in front of the veil there is the altar of incense. We haven't gotten to that yet. To the left is the, the golden lampstand. We'll talk about that next week. And then to the right, you see this little table um, called, sometimes called the, the table of showbread uh, or referred to by the name of the bread on it, the, the bread of the presence. Um, so very distinct, very specific directions on how to build this, what it's to be made of and how it's to be made. So now, now let's put up a picture of the, the table itself. Um, this is uh, somebody's attempt at reconstructing it and the, the elements along with it. Um, it was to be made of acacia wood. Uh, two cubits long, one cubit deep, and a cubit and a half tall. Um, we need to make some custom tape measures and save me some math. Uh, cubit is about 18 inches. So uh, it's about three feet long, a foot and a half deep, and two and a half feet tall. It's a small table. Um, it's, it's, it's almost miniature. But those who carried it would have been glad for that because it's overlaid with pure gold. Uh, it would not have been light. Um, it had a molding around the top, some kind of decorative rim. This is this artist's uh, attempt to recreate that. We don't know exactly what it looked like. Um, and just like the Ark of the Covenant, there were four rings on the corners and poles were being put through those rings to carry the table. Remember, everything here is portable. This, this is a whole um, setup on the move as they wander through the wilderness. Uh, and then verse 29 tells us there are these four other pieces made of pure gold. Um, they were to make plates, probably shown here underneath the bread. They were to make uh, dishes of incense that were to be put on top of the bread. They were to make flagons. There's a great word. I need to start using that. Pass me the flagon. Um, flagon is just a jug or, or a pitcher. Um, it's plural here. There's only one in the picture. Um, and then bowls. Uh, 
with which to pour the drink offerings. I think that would be the goblets in this picture. Um, it's as good a guess as any. Um, and then on the table, they were to put the bread of the presence. And they were to put it before the Lord regularly. And uh, over, I believe it's Leviticus 24, it talks about um, the specifics. They were to bake 12 loaves and put them in two stacks of six. So that's what you have here in this picture. Uh, and, and that's about it. Uh, fairly simple. But why? What's it all about? What, what a strange thing um, to command this people to build. Well, let's go back to the beginning just for a second. Um, God had rescued this people out of Egypt. Uh, He told them that he would make them his special, beloved people, his precious people. He told them then to build this, this tent and that it would be in this tent that he would dwell among them. His presence would be with them. And, and of course, um, that comes back to the Ark of the Covenant, this fancy box at the back of the tent. And it had a special lid called the atonement cover. And he said, my presence will be right there above the atonement cover. Um, but why the table? What's, what's that about? What is that communicating? Um, God is telling them something about his presence. He's telling them more about what it means that he'll be with them. And, and, and the table, like so much of the tabernacle, is, is God, think of it as, as symbolic promises. And the first promise that we see, I think, in this table, um, there's a promise of provision. Bread was a staple food in the ancient world. Uh, Bread was often used symbolically to speak of just food in in general, uh, but more than that, to speak of kind of basic daily needs. And so when Jesus tells us, when you pray, pray, give us this day our daily bread, it's not just talking about bread, he's talking about our, our general needs, the things that, that we need to live. And, and so the table with bread on it is God saying, I will be with you and I'll provide for you. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to supply your basic needs. I'll care for you. This is bread here in my presence. Now, this wasn't new. Uh, Exodus 16, as they had freshly wandered out into the wilderness. They'd been out about two months, this group of two to three million people wandering in the desert. Uh, They ran out of food. Anything they had brought with them began to dwindle and they began to grumble and to fear. And the Lord provided for them. He said, go out every morning and out uh, on the ground like dew, they would find manna, bread. Again, God's saying, I'll provide. I will care for you. The difference here in the tabernacle is is God is very specifically connecting that provision with with his presence. This is what it means that I will be with you. It means I'll provide. You're my chosen people. I'll take care of you. Come to me, seek after me, be my people, and I'll provide. And that promise still stands. God cares about the physical needs of his people. Maybe it's been a tough week or month, or year, or longer. You're looking at the bank account and the bills, and the math is not working in your favor. You're, you're looking for work, and, and it's just not coming the way you hoped. You're, you're feeling the weight. How, how am I going to get through this? 
How am I going to provide for my family? And, and I, know, I know women feel this. I don't mean to discredit that. But, but especially men, this hits us hard because we're, we're the provider, right? And, and there's, there's something right and good about that. God has called us as men to, to provide for our families. And there's a certain degree we, we ought to feel that burden. If you, if you don't feel that burden, then we need to have a different conversation. But we have this tendency to take it too far. To, to carry the weight beyond what is ours to carry. You're a tool. Yes, the tool that God will most likely use to provide for your family. And, and so it's right and, and good that we, that we work hard and, and make wise decisions and, and take that incredibly seriously. But you need to realize you're not the ultimate provider of your family. The buck doesn't stop with you. You're not God. He's the provider. And, and that means that when things are going really well and your family is well supplied for and you have money even to do some fun things with, um, we, we need to turn that praise to the Lord. We need to recognize He's the one who's ultimately given that to us. But likewise, when things are not going well, when you've done what feels like all you can do, but the jobs just aren't there the money isn't coming in. Circumstances outside of your control have left you just short and helpless. Um, it's easy to spot the pride when we take the credit for ourselves, but we don't seem quite as quick to recognize when we take too much of the credit when things go poorly. It's the same misplaced responsibility. We, we ought to be concerned. To, we're, we're right to try to work harder, try to make better decisions, change some things if we need to. But when it comes down to it, I'm not the ultimate provider. and That burden isn't mine to carry. And just like we should be grateful to the Lord in times of plenty, and, and to not be grateful is an expression of pride, so also... Um, we should give that burden to the Lord in times of need. And as we wrestle and feel this anxiety and pressure on us, that, that's also um, an expression of pride. And so we often feel like victims of anxiety. And sometimes there's an extent to which we need to repent of that. We need to repent of holding on to too much and, and making too much of our role in this. It comes down to a lack of trust in God who promises to provide. Listen to what Jesus said about this. Um, Matthew chapter 6. Let me flip over there and invite you to do the same. We're going to spend a couple minutes there. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, looking at verse 25. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on, is not life worth more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, 
saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Notice as Jesus is telling this, how he refers to God, your heavenly father, the father that is above you, earthly father, the father who loves you and wants to care for you the same way that you love your kids and and want to care for them and provide for them. Difference being, of course, um, we're weak and, and frail and limited, and he's not. He's the one who feeds the birds and clothes the lilies. Uh, it, it's no stretch for him to feed and clothe us as well. Um, don't be anxious. Don't carry that load on your own shoulders. It's, it's not for you to carry. But there's more than that. Jesus hints at it um, at the beginning of this passage. And he says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's saying hey, there's, there's something beyond here. There's something more than just physical needs. And then he goes on to say that the Gentiles seek after these things, those who don't know God, those who are not his people. They're they're preoccupied with this physical world and their physical needs, what they're they're going to wear and what they're going to eat. That's what their life is about. The implication being that is not what your life should be about. You ought to know better. And then he drops it. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Focus on, seek after, run after the Lord. Make him your primary goal. Make your life not about getting stuff, but about getting him. And then the the ebb and flow of success and need um, ceases to rock your world because it's not primary. And it's so much easier to to trust in Jesus' promise uh, of providing for our physical needs when we're focused on the fact that he's already provided for our deepest need. He's already given us what we truly need in Christ. And we're finding our joy and and satisfaction in in him. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. You see the, the imagery here, he's picking up on that. Whoever comes to me shall no longer Hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is, is the provision of something so much more satisfying than, than food or water, something far greater. This pushes back to this idea of the bread of the presence. It was a promise of, of God's provision. I'm here, I will care for you, I'll provide for your needs. But there's something so much more wrapped up in that. The, the bread of the presence uh, is promising God's provision, but, but much more than that, secondly, it's promising God's presence. And His presence in a very specific way. This whole concept of the tabernacle, this special tent built in the middle of their camp, was God saying that his very presence would be among his people. We've talked about this in the past weeks. Uh, That's problematic. That's not good for us. 
What do you mean? I thought he was what satisfies. I thought he was the most glorious, joy-giving thing there is. Absolutely. The problem is God is holy. He's perfect. He's everything right and good. And, and, and that means he hates everything evil. He hates everything wicked, everything that is less than perfect. And look, I'm sorry if you've only ever been told that you're a a perfect, beautiful butterfly, but the truth is you're a sinner. We all are. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all done things that God has commanded us not to do. And, and, And to get right to the bottom of it, our biggest sin that gives birth to all of our sin is the basic fact that we live our lives as though we were God. And that's the heart of it. It's treason. We live and think and act as if we're the ones who get to decide what's right and what's wrong. I'm the ultimate authority. I will follow myself rather than God. And we rebel against his rule. We rebel against his place as God. And we say, no, I think I'll be God. Thank you very much. And the wages of sin is death. God is a righteous judge, a good judge. When we talk about the goodness of God, we so quickly go to to this idea that God will then just pat sin on the head, but that's not the way it works. A good judge does not let criminals go free. His perfect holiness is referred to in the Bible as a consuming fire that will burn up all evil, or like pure light that obliterates the darkness. And so if we understand God rightly and ourselves rightly, we we get this idea that that God coming to be with us is terrifying. And one of the most dangerous presumptions that we have, one of the most dangerous expressions of our sinfulness is when we try to fix that problem our own way. I want you to notice something. Think about these verses that we read from Exodus, uh, maybe even flip back to chapter 25 and, and just look at that and the details listed there and just maybe scan through that as I read from Exodus 37. This is 12 chapters later. This is telling what they did. So, so chapter 25 has the command and chapter 37 has them obeying. And it says... He also made a table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and he made a molding around it. He made a rim around it, a handbreadth wide and made a molding of gold around the rim. He cast for it four rings of gold and fastened the rings to the four corners of its four legs. Close to the frame were the rings as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table and overlaid them with gold and made vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table, its plates and dishes for incense, its bowls and flagons with which to pour the drink offerings. Do you notice? It's incredibly repetitive. It's so redundant that God would would write this all out twice, but he's making a point. Detail after detail after detail the Israelites built exactly what they were commanded. They followed perfectly what God had said to do. 
And in fact, not only did God give these detailed instructions, um, but the end of chapter 25, when he had given the instructions for the Ark of the Covenant and the table and the lampstand, um, verse 40, just in case they missed it, said, see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Do it exactly as I said. I will dwell among you. I will be with you. But you will only be able to come to me exactly the way I lay out. Exactly the way that I have opened. We get so casual about God. Forgetting His holiness, forgetting our sinfulness. And we begin to think we can come to God just any way we please. We can come to Him on our own terms. I'll set the agenda. I come to God through whatever. I come to God through meditation. I come to God just quietly through nature. I come to God through yoga. God says, no, you will come to me exactly the way that I have opened. It wasn't Israel building a tabernacle, trying to climb their way up to God, trying to get to him. This was God coming down and saying, this is the way. This is how you will come to me. God started first telling him about the Ark of the Covenant, this strange box, and, and, and put inside that box are the Ten Commandments, the, the symbol of the law that condemned them. I don't know if you've ever just kind of skimmed through the Ten Commandments and used it as a checklist. Uh, it doesn't go well. And then on top of the Ark, on top of this box, they put the atonement cover, this lid that God told them to build, and it symbolized how God would cover their sin. And his presence would dwell above the atonement cover so that when he looked down at the law that condemned them, he wouldn't see the law that condemned them. He would see the atonement cover, and it was on the atonement cover they would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice. God is saying, I will cover your sin. I will make a way. Your right for me to come into your presence would be death for you, but I will cover your sin. And, and the tabernacle, followed by the, the temple and the system around it, for, for 1,400 years was the only way to approach God. That was it. In the, in the entire world, this was how you came to God. But that was never meant to be the final solution. It was never the end-all, be-all. It was only ever pointing forward to the true tabernacle. It was pointing forward to Jesus. These were these symbolic promises of what God would do in Christ. His death on the cross that would cover our sin so that we as a sinful people could, could be in the presence of God and live. That's shocking. And he, Jesus, is the only way. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. People get all bent out of shape. Jesus is the only way. Is it that narrow? Is that the, the only way you can get to God? What's wrong with every other way? And I just want to shake my head. You don't get it. God would have been right to destroy you. He made a way. What do you mean that's the only way? He made a way. It's shocking. It's glorious. It's wonderful. That's the, the beginning of our relationship with God. That's the heart of the tabernacle. Makes it possible for this interaction. But it, but it doesn't give us a lot of definition as to what that relationship with God will be like. 
Do we then become his slaves? Is it a servant-master relationship? Is it a relationship like that between a judge and a pardoned criminal? What does this invitation into the presence of the Lord really mean? And, And he answers that question by setting the table. By having them build in the tabernacle, inside his tent, a dinner table. Now just stop and think about that. The the God who spoke and in an instant came into being the sun, the moon, the stars, the universe. The God who the Bible says holds the ocean in the palm of his hand and measures the constellations by the span of his hand. That God first said, build for me, not not a palace, not a castle, not even a temple, but a a tent, the same kind of dwelling in which his people were living. And God said, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to come down and dwell among you in in the simplest of abode. And then he set the table with bread and even a jug and cups for wine. I want to come to you. And I want you to be with me in an intimate relationship, in a personal way. Come and eat with me. This is shocking. We so often go astray here. We so easily get caught up in doing. How do you please God? Just just go out onto the street this afternoon. Just ask people, um, what would it mean to be right with God? How do you get to heaven? Nine times out of ten, you'll hear do, 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 do. Or maybe more accurately, don't do, don't do, don't do. Right? That's religion. So many people live their whole lives going to church, giving money to the church, helping the poor, being kind, maybe even reading the Bible and dutifully saying their prayers. And God is not impressed. They missed it. They totally missed it. That's not at all what God is about. That's not at all what He wants. It's not what He's asking for. This, this idea of a formal exterior religion, this duty toward God is an offense to Him. It's trying to come to Him on our own terms. It's saying, I'll make the way. Don't come down to me, God. I'll climb up to you. It's not the way. We read from Matthew 6 a few minutes ago, Jesus saying, seek first the kingdom of God. Just down from that in chapter 7, Jesus says these shocking words, this is what it looks like to seek first the kingdom of God. And he speaks of some who did it wrong. Matthew 7, 22, on that day, and and Jesus is talking about the final day of, of judgment, is on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lord, we did this, we did that, we did the other thing. Aren't you impressed with everything we've done? Now let's just be clear. Jesus sets this up intentionally. So we read this and we think, dang, 
Those guys did way more than I could ever do. They beat me. They did better because Jesus knows how you think. See, if, if the guys in this story had showed up and said, Jesus, we fed 500 homeless people and they were turned away at the gate, what would we have done? We'd have said, chumps, I'll feed a 1,000. I'll do better. I'll outdo what they did. But Jesus is setting us up. He's playing us. These men prophesied and cast out demons and did many mighty works. I don't care who you are. These guys got you beat. They did more. Bring your resume. Put it up. Jesus is graciously crushing your hope of doing enough so that we just put our hands down and go, I can't, I can't, I can't compete with that. If that wasn't enough, I'm finished. And he's crushing that hope in us because doing isn't the answer. So what is? Well, look carefully at Jesus' words. What were these men lacking? Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't do enough. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. You did all of those things, but you didn't know me. That impersonal religion built on duty and, and performance and putting out the right exterior, it's not what God was after. It's not what he's ever been about, even for Israel. He set the table. He invited them to come in and know him, to enjoy his presence. And the imagery of the bread goes kind of one layer deeper. The bread speaks not only of God's satisfying our hunger for food, but that he himself satisfies the hunger of our soul. He's the one. The relationship with him that he's inviting us to is that thing that fulfills our deepest longing. Listen to the language of the Psalms. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed, such a rich word, happy, full, satisfied, is the man who takes refuge in him. Come and taste the Lord. Psalm 107.9 He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. He's the true bread. Psalm 63 Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Now listen, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. It's that feeling of, of, of finishing off that, that massive ribeye and sitting back and going, I'm full. That's what Jesus gives. That's what the Lord gives to our soul. Fat and rich food. That's what God wants. People who have a relationship with Him, people who know Him. This real, personal, meaningful relationship. Joyfully satisfied in Him. Do you have that kind of relationship with the Lord? I, I don't care. And He doesn't care. 
If you go to church twice a week, read the Bible a hundred times over, if you're the best father and the, and the perfect mother, if you've never lied or cheated or honored a single square word in your life, that's not the point. That's not what God's after. The question is, do you know him? Do you love him? Do you have a relationship with him? Or when you stand before him on that judgment day, will he say, I never knew you. I distinctly remember as a teenager listening to uh, Grace Sheenbein was her name, talking to our youth group. And she was talking about this very thing, this true relationship and love for God. I grew up in the church. I was in the church two to three times a week. My dad was an elder. I knew the Bible forwards and backwards. I kid you not, I was on a competitive Bible memorization team and we traveled Like, we meant business. I taught Sunday school. I don't know that I actually literally had uttered a single swear word. I was squeaky clean and proud of it. And as Grace Sheenbein talked about this relationship for God, this love for God, I distinctly remember in my head thinking she must mean something different by that word love. She must mean something different by that word relationship because in my head it just didn't compute. Because I worked harder at being a Christian than anyone I knew. And I didn't have either of those. And it wasn't long after that day the Lord began to graciously destroy what I thought was my Christianity. Showed me how self-centered and arrogant it was as I was trying to climb up to him and impress him with all of my filthy rags. It wasn't about him. It was about me. And I began to learn that that he actually invites us to his table. He actually invites us to know him. That we come to him by grace. That he's the one who covers our sin. Not that, not that we have to somehow make it all go away and cover it or, or outbalance it with our good deeds, but he says, no, I will take care of it. I'll wipe it away. Now, those who know him, yeah. Yeah, they go to church. Yeah, they do live lives of increasing holiness. They do read the Bible. They do pray. But they do those things because those things are the way that we grow closer to Him. In those things, we get to walk with Him, to be with Him, to know Him more. But it's not about what's on the outside. It's not about what you do. Do you know Him? Have you accepted this invitation to come to the table? He calls us to this loving relationship with Him. John 1.12 Jesus says of Jesus to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children. And there are 12 loaves set out on that table. Every, uh, every tribe of Israel has a loaf of bread on their behalf. It's for everyone. There's enough for all. Exodus 25 says in verse 30, they were commanded to set the bread of the presence on the table regularly. It's out there all the time. 
enough for all. It's an open invitation. Saying, come. It's here. It's available. Revelation 3.20, this beautiful picture. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. He's calling. He welcomes. Come and eat. Come and open the door. Come and know me. And no one who comes to him in faith will be turned away. He welcomes the filthiest of sinners. He he welcomes the most rebellious of defiance, the hardest of hearts, the furthest away. He says, just come. There's no call to to clean yourself up, to set things right, to, to better yourself first. Just come. And he begins with a simple act of giving up. Recognizing there's nothing I can do to fix the mess that I've made. There's nothing I can do to make my sin go away, to impress God, to somehow please Him, to to fix this problem of my sin on my own, but that He's already done what needs to be done. That in Jesus, the price has been paid, and all I need to do is trust in Him. And that call goes out to those who do not know God, those who have never before come to Jesus in faith, But actually, if you're looking at Revelation, those words were spoken to the church. Those words are spoken to the church of Laodicea, the church that had grown lukewarm. They had once been passionate about Christ, and they had become stale, disconnected, cold and withdrawn. This call goes out to you, Christian. Have you grown cold? Has your time in the Word and your time in prayer become about duty, about checking off the box and trying to impress God rather than delighting in the presence of the Lord? Or maybe you've backed off on those things altogether. You've pulled away. You've become disconnected in your faith. So what what do you do? Well, Revelation 3.20 says that Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. He'll come in and eat. And in Revelation 3.19, the verse just before that, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent because I stand at the door and knock. Don't wait for the Lord's discipline. Don't wait for him to wake you up. Repent. Repent. Open the door, turn back from your coldness and seek the Lord. Seek Him with passion. Pursue Him. Take time to sit down. Take time to to read and, and open your Bible and see what the Lord says and respond to Him in prayer as you read. Make it about being with Him. Not not filling my head with more knowledge of his word, but being with him. And remember, the best is yet to come. This invitation here and now to be be reconciled with God, to to dine with him, this is just the beginning. It doesn't end here, it just starts here. The imagery of the offer of a meal began here in the tabernacle. 
it builds to, to Jesus and his offer that he will enter in and eat with us. And then it culminates in another meal. It, it culminates in Revelation 19. This is when the world has come to an end and, and Jesus has returned says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The marriage supper of Jesus. That's the ultimate. A a wedding in the ancient Near East um, had three stages. First, the groom would sign the contract with the parents of the bride and pay a dowry for her significant cost and she would be his but then for a year they would be betrothed uh, engaged almost married but separated still waiting for that wedding day to come and then finally that day would come and and the groom uh, would get his his groomsmen together and they would march in this grand parade and this entourage with torches across the town at midnight to the home of the bride and she will have made herself ready, dressed in white and surrounded by her bridesmaids. And together they would return back to his home, again parading across town in this celebration. And they would get to his house for a feast, a celebration that would last for days. They do weddings right. And Jesus is saying, I've paid your dowry with my own blood. I've made you mine. And we have long awaited this time of engagement, but but one day I'm coming back. And, And in that day, we will not only dine together, but it will be a feast to end all feasts. It will be a marriage supper together. And, and we as the church think this through. It's amazing. We will not only be present at the table with the Lord, we will be as his precious new bride, sitting in his right hand for a celebration into eternity. That's what he offers. That's the promise what lies ahead for those who today will hear his voice, who will see this promise of the, the presence of God, who will know him now, trust in him by faith, come to him, betroth themselves to him. Let's pray. Father, it's too much. It's amazing. It's more than, more than we can easily wrap our minds around. What an amazing thing, God, that you have welcomed us. Lord, that you've covered our sin. That you've not destroyed us as our sins deserve. But have opened a way for us to come to you. And, and not just to, to come to you in, in servitude, but as your children, as your bride to eat with you, to know you. 
Oh, Father, I pray if there are any here who don't know you, God, would you, would you open their eyes to see the wonder of what you offer, to see the grace that you hold out, Lord, I pray if there are any here who have been caught up in in doing and working and trying to impress you, God, that you would just crush that in their hearts, that they would feel the full weight of sin and guilt and helplessness and see your grace. They would give up and trust in you and know what it means to love you, to know you. And I pray for those who've become weary. Lord, that, that once described them, but now their time in the word has just been cold and frustrating and difficult, caught up again in duty. Lord, would you, would you meet them again? Lord, would you call them back to that simple practice of communing with you in your word? Lord, that you would show yourself true again, that the promise of Christ would be fulfilled again, that as they repent and seek you, that you would come in and eat with them. Breathe life back into their relationship with you, Father. Lord, that we might be satisfied in you, that we might find our joy and our peace in your presence as we await that glorious day, as we walk through this engagement period looking forward to the marriage supper. Lord, encourage us with that day that we might have hope, that we might endure, that we might seek to know you more and more every day looking forward to that glorious eternity. Father, we thank you, we praise you Lord, be at work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.